All right. How y'all doing? <laughs> Again. <laughs> good, good. Hey, we're going to be in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 31 and 32. Again, my name is Jeremy Alford. Uh, Todd has been in Colorado since Wednesday of last week. He'll get back uh, tomorrow at some point. Um, and so if you've been trying to reach out and, and he's ghosted you, then that is the reason why. <clears throat> and so we're just going to continue right along on where we've been. I'm going to try to cover uh, two chapters today. <clears throat> so say a prayer for me. Or better yet, say a prayer for you. Um, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that you need to trust in the Lord and not trust in the things of this world. Hopefully, we from the pulpit have said that exact thing many times since we've been working through the book of Isaiah. One commentator, Dr. John Ortberg, says that the greatest overarching question of Isaiah chapter 7 to Isaiah chapter 39 is the question, whom shall God's people trust? Whom shall God's people trust? And Isaiah himself is a great example of what it means to trust in the Lord. You see, he was chosen by God to deliver an important message to the Israelites. God had been setting up his people for an incredible future of, of redemption and hope. But before any of that can happen, God gave Isaiah this really intense vision that overwhelmed him. And it was in that very crucial moment that Isaiah had to answer the question, whom shall I trust? Now in chapter 21, we see that Isaiah is relating to the people as judgment is pronounced and destruction is coming. And Isaiah basically says, man, my stomach sinks. My gut churns with pain as a woman in labor wrenches and, or wrenches and rise. I can hardly bear the news. I, I cannot hear because I'm, I'm bent over with agony. I cannot see because I'm in the deep fog of depression. These are pretty strong words expressing pretty strong emotions. And yet... Isaiah places his trust in the Lord. I think many of us can relate with Isaiah. We experience these same feelings, and yet we also have to decide where our trust will belong. And it seems to me that during those difficult moments, prayer, prayer becomes especially difficult. Instead of praying, we find relief in making a plan. Or, or figuring out some kind of a solution, or maybe we just busy ourselves so that we don't have to set our mind on it, and maybe that will remedy the situation. But Isaiah did not place his trust in a plan. He did not place his trust in a man-made solution. No, he relied on God. He relied on his faith in God. And it proved to be a very real, vulnerable, authentic faith. He was honest about his doubt. He was honest about his frustration, and that's okay because underneath all of it was this raw trust. Sometimes trusting in the Lord isn't pretty, is it? And sometimes there's some pretty rough emotions. But what's at the bottom of all of that? Is it faith? Are you trusting in the Lord? Even if it's dirty and ugly, is there trust at the bottom of it all? I wonder if we just hit pause on life. We just sat back and we reflected, what would we find at the bottom of it all? You see, Isaiah is inspiring because he doesn't hold back. He, he expresses the deep pain, how hard it is to hear God, or how hard it is to see that God is working and yet his trust deepens in those difficult moments. And that's because earthly trials expose where our trust truly lies. Earthly trials expose our true Savior, so to speak. So one example of this, when we face the terror of a life-threatening disease, our Savior floats to the top. If we comfort ourselves with the advancements of medical science, well, then that is where our, our trust truly lies. Our Savior is medical advancement. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that medical advancement is 
is bad. It's, it's a good thing, but it makes a lousy savior. Another example, when we face economic recession and your company has had mass layoffs, again, our savior floats to the top. If we comfort ourselves with a bank account that can support us for three months, well, then that's where our trust truly lies. And again, it's, it's wise to have a reserve fund. It's wise to have emergency money in the bank, but your bank account makes a really lousy savior. You see, God is a jealous God, and he wants you to place your trust in him and in him alone. And so as we explore Isaiah today, we'll once again find that we need absolute trust in God and not in the wisdom of men or or human resources or material things, but to trust in God. Now, as I mentioned, there's a lot to cover. So we're going to start in chapter 31 with the idea that you should trust God because man is weak and God is great. And then we'll move into chapter 32 and we will explore the promises of God for those who believe. And then I'll conclude back in chapter 31 with a very brief and practical how to trust God. So you all ready? I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 31 say, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together." So the picture here is God speaking to his people about how they're looking to Egypt for support and strength. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you when you go to other things in this world, other people in this world besides me. And this has been a long time problem for God's people. We constantly want to go back to Egypt. We see this trend starting with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, when he receives a great word from the Lord telling him to leave his home country and to begin traveling to a land that has not yet been revealed to him. And as he begins that journey, there's a great famine. And what does, Abra- what does Abraham do when all of his plans are ruined by the famine? He turns aside and he goes to Egypt. And then we see God's people who are brought out of the land of Egypt during the great exodus. And yet they fail to trust God. They fail to trust his promises to bring them into a land full of his grace and mercy. And instead they begin to complain, can't we just go back? Can't we just go back to Egypt? King Solomon continues the motif as he marries the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so it's, it's not surprising that our chapter today has God's people seeking out the provision and strength of a foreign country rather than trusting in God. Because we still do this today. There's something deep in our hearts that wants to go back. We simply crave Egypt. We crave the familiar. We crave the, the predictable. We crave what we know. You see, in Isaiah's day, King Hezekiah was tempted to trust in Egypt because Assyria was threatening. It says specifically in verse 1 that God's people were relying on Egypt's horses. They were trusting in their chariots and their strong horsemen. This actually makes sense if you think about it, because Egypt had defeated many enemies with horses and chariots. This This is how they fought, and it worked for them. Egypt was a flat country where you could easily wage war with horses and chariots. Made a lot of sense for Egypt. But it made no sense for Judah. Judah is not flat. 
Judah is a hill country, and so it would have been very difficult to wage war with horses and chariots. And this is one of the reasons why it was so foolish to trust in Egypt. But there's something deeper that's going on here. God's people were looking at the success of another nation, and they wanted to put their trust in that other nation. They wanted to imitate Egypt, right? They saw something that worked in somebody else's life, and they thought, hmm, I bet if I can just imitate that, if I can just be like that, if I can figure out their plan and then duplicate it, then I know that I'm going to be all right. We do this. We, we do this exact same thing. We see the success of another person and we think, I want to be like them. So we study them. We find out on a practical level how they became successful and we begin to follow the plan that God has given for their life. All the while, never even realizing that we have placed our trust in something besides God. You see, God did not want Judah to look like Egypt or to act like Egypt. No, God wanted Judah to look like and act like God's people. He wanted them to look like Judah. And church, God wants you to start trusting that he has an individual plan for your life. He wants you to stop looking around and planning your life according to what you see is working in somebody else's life. We have to quit comparing ourselves and start trusting that God has something very specifically for you. You see, what Egypt had was totally inappropriate for the people of God. It would be like an uncivilized African tribe asking America, can we have some of your tanks and some of your fighter jets? They just wouldn't know how to use them. It would do them absolutely no good. Judah wasn't prepared to wage war with chariots and horsemen. But how often do we pray that God will give us what somebody else has? God, I, I would be so much more effective in my ministry if my spouse was just as awesome as, as that person's spouse. God, God, if you blessed me with as much money as that person, man, I could really do some awesome things in the church. I could really make a difference. God, if I just looked as good or if I was as charismatic as that person, if I, if I just had a way with people the way that they do, man, I could share the gospel and it would be great. And once again, we've fallen into the trap of looking at the success of another person instead of trusting in God. You have to trust that God has something for you that is different than anyone else. If you're not trusting that God has a plan for your life, then you're in danger of coveting. You're in danger of idolatry. Now check this out. In Psalm chapter 20, verses 6, 7, and 8, it'll be on the screen behind me, King David says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed... He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You see, what makes God's people different? Well, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but what makes us different? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. It truly is that simple. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And our passage is going to give us two main reasons why we should trust in the name of the Lord our God. The first reason is the weakness of man. And the second reason is the greatness of God. Notice how he summarizes the weakness of man in verse 3. He says, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Isaiah is being quite clear here. Egyptians are but men, finite, mortal, weak men. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, 
for of what account is he? I love how he says it here. What a great way to say it. Stop trusting in man because, you know, he's got to breathe. Isn't that kind of a weakness? You have to breathe. Like, how ridiculous. You're so weak, you've got to breathe. And King David would agree. As Amber read earlier, Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation, because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. And then David says, My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Man, talk about a difference, right? Like one is over here creating planets and universes while the other one is over here breathing. Like, good job, you're breathing. God's creating universes and planets. There's a vast difference between the two. And so we have to trust the Lord because the alternative is weak and undeserving. People are weak and undeserving. I am weak and undeserving. Through my preparations this week, I came across a story about a man named Andrew Bonner. He was a great Scottish evangelical in the early 1800s, and he ministered for a long time in a city called Glasgow. And it was said that he was one of the greatest soul winners in the 1800s. This man was a great pastor, he was a great preacher, and he had this remarkable ministry. So much so that people began to name their children after Andrew Bonner. Right? So if Kendra and I had done that, then our son would not be named Noah, but instead our son would be Andrew Bonner Alford. And apparently child after child after child was being named Andrew Bonner. So there's Andrew Bonner Jones, Andrew Bonner Smith, Andrew Bonner Wallace. It, it, just, it just went on and on. And as I was studying this guy, the legend went as far as saying that nine out of the ten children who were baptized in this neighborhood of Glasgow were named Andrew Bonner. So here's baptizing Andrew Bonner over and over and over. Well, one day, Andrew Bonner died. It's what mortal men do. His funeral was a huge event that once again drew a large crowd. And there was a man there that was impacted heavily by Andrew Bonner. He had known him personally. He felt this deep connection with him. Uh, it, it, was a, it was not only a, a very close friendship, but it was one of those like mentor-mentee kind of relationships. Well, after the funeral, this man left and he went for a walk in the park, but he could barely walk because he was crying so hard. So he sat down on this nearby bench. About that time, a woman walked by with a stroller and two kids, one kid in the stroller and one kid walking next to the stroller. Just as they walked by this man on the bench, the woman had to scold the older kid who was on the outside of the stroller because that kid had, had leaned over and they were pushing in on that baby. And that mother said, listen here, don't you lean on Andrew Bonner. And it dawned on him, as it has dawned on some of you, don't you lean on Andrew Bonner. That woman may have been talking to her oldest child but God was speaking to that man. Don't you lean on Pastor Andrew Bonner. And so he went home and he bowed before God and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it is in the Lord that I trust. And it is in Him that I will lean. In God's grace, He gives spiritual mentors and leaders and those are great, great things. Good gifts from God. But they cannot, they must not replace God. The simple truth is that no matter who the person may be, they're either going to die, or at some point, they will prove themselves to be a disappointment. 
And we should not allow that truth to lead us into jaded or or disconnected relationships, but instead to lead us into placing our trust where it truly belongs. And so it is because of the weakness of man that God impresses upon Isaiah the error of trusting in Egypt because they are but men. And then the second reason we should trust God, which is the greater of the two reasons, is because of the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And we'll focus specifically on two aspects, his wisdom and his power. Let's think first of his wisdom. Notice back in verse 2, there's this rather sarcastic comment, as it appears, that God is It's like God is comparing himself, comparing his resume to that of Egypt, saying, I too am wise. It's as if God is waving his hand saying, hey, hey, I'm over here. If you want to ask me what to do, I'm also kind of wise. I know you you think Egypt is wise, but hey, hey, me too. God is waving his hand saying, I am wise. And I think that the sarcasm is necessary Because we are all quick to admit that God is infinitely wiser. He's infinitely wiser than any man or woman who has ever lived. And yet, we do the same thing. We look for wisdom in all of the wrong places. And all the while, God is just waving His hand, shouting out James 1, 5. Man, if you lack wisdom, ask. I'm over here. Ask me. Do you want wisdom? I've got it in in spades. Just ask me and I will give you a generous portion. Come and ask. King Hezekiah, that's not what he did, right? King Hezekiah, he, he didn't know what to do. Instead of asking God, he goes to Egypt. And this is foolish. God wants his children to come to him and ask him what to do, right? So so when you're confused and when life doesn't make any sense, God wants you to tell him that and to say, God, I need you. I just, I'm lost. I haven't the slightest clue what to do. You see, not only is God great in wisdom, but he wants you to be great in wisdom, And so when you ask for his wisdom, he will give it to you. He will give it to you. And when he gives it, it will never prove itself to be bad advice. Like you're never going to have to go back to Jesus with this failed result or with some brand new information and have Jesus say, man, I guess that wasn't very good advice, was it? Sorry about that. Like Jesus is never like that. It says that he will never call back his words because he is great in wisdom. And he is also great in power. So in verse 3, all God has to do is stretch out his hand and the helper and the helped will stumble and fall. That is the helper being Egypt and the helped being Judah. God is powerful enough to bring disaster to both of them if he so chooses, right? And then in verse 4 and 5, we learn how the power of God makes him both a terror to his foes and a protector to his own people. Verse 4 says, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Right, so instead of the lion and the lamb, God is now referred to as the lion and the bird. Right, so so imagine this with me for a moment. You're a shepherd, you're out in the field, and you see a lion who has caught one of your little lambs. It's terrifying. It's horrible. And you're in shock. Like, what do you do? Like, just 50 yards away, there's a hungry lion with one of your sheep. And so you, you begin to yell at it. Like, leave it alone. 
stop, stop, leave it alone, but nothing happens. Right? So you muster all of your courage, all of your strength, and you approach that lion still yelling like, stop, leave it alone. That doesn't do anything. Like the truth is that, that lion does not care about you. He's not going to listen to you. Like he's not scared of all of your yelling. Like you can do nothing to intimidate a lion. You can't hurt him. And he knows it. Like at best, he might give you like one of those growls, right? Like, mm. at worst, like you're next. Like you, you can't do anything to that lion. And this is the picture of God's power in verse 4. He is strong and determined, and he will not be detoured. This is a picture of our great God against his enemies, right? That he will devour his enemies, which is terrifying if you're an enemy. But it is very, very comforting if you are the one who is in need of protection. I think of that great line in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, in the story, there's a lion named Aslan who plays this godlike figure in this child. He goes and he asks, is he safe? And the answer is no. No, he is not safe, but he is good. He is powerful enough to devour his enemies like a roaring lion, but he's also like a protective bird that cannot be moved from protecting her young. Right, so the imagery has now switched and is much more uh, tender and, and affectionate. You see, the great power of God that he displays in protecting you is not meant to scare you or to keep you at a distance. No, th these images are coupled because both the lion and the bird together are meant to solicit your trust. After all, verse 5 ends with, he will protect you and deliver you. He will spare you and rescue you. And just let that sink in for a moment. Because this is personal for those who trust in the Lord. Like, this is personal. We can plug our name into the text. When it says, God will protect you, like put your name in there. Like God will protect Jeremy. God will deliver Jeremy. God will, will spare Jeremy. God will rescue Jeremy. This is personal. And what must I do? Trust Him. That's it. I simply must trust that that is true. And so He can be trusted because He is wise and He is powerful. And then the text gives us an example of how He protects Judah from Assyria. Skip to verses 8 and 9. It says, And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what happens. The Lord does protect Assyria. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 19 uh, when the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrian men. And it was an angel of the Lord that did that, causing them to retreat back to their capital city of Nineveh. And so we trust in the Lord because man is weak and because God is great. Now, as we move forward, I want to shift our attention away from the reasons why we should trust God and instead put the spotlight on what awaits those who trust God. Now, I'll name them first, and then we'll look more closely at them. There are four of them that, that we'll pull out of the chapter. There's righteousness and justice, and then there is security and restoration. And these are marks of the kingdom that awaits those who trust in the Lord. 
And so the future starts first and foremost with a promised king because verse 1 says, Behold, a king who will reign in righteousness and princes who will rule in justice. Now the king mentioned in verse 1 is none other than King Jesus. And he will reign in righteousness and those who reign underneath him will reign in justice. Now remember with me back to Isaiah chapter 5 when he talks about a vineyard. Seems like I'm always up here talking about this vineyard out of chapter 5. It's the bad vineyard that gets destroyed because God is looking for two things that he didn't find. Those two things are righteousness and justice. God has been clear throughout the entire book of Isaiah. He wants those two things. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 27 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. So what is the difference now between righteousness and justice? They seem very similar, but one, one is moral and one is social in nature. You see, righteousness is a respect for and a following of the law of God. God wants you to be righteous because to live righteously is to obey God. So that's moral. Justice, on the other hand, is social. Justice is a respect for and a concern about the rights of other people. And God wants this because to live justly is to be concerned about the people in your life, specifically the oppressed. Therefore, righteousness is primarily a vertical relationship And justice is primarily a horizontal relationship. To trust God is to live righteously, trusting that His way of life is best and that the guidelines that He has given for you in this life are actually for your good. To trust God is also to live justly, trusting that the best way to live your life is to care deeply about the people around you. And perhaps this sounds familiar to you because Jesus said this very same thing in Matthew chapter 22 when he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And that's righteousness. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's justice. So God wants righteousness and justice he always has and he always will and it is a kingdom that is marked with these characteristics that awaits those who have placed their trust in god now if righteousness and justice are are the fountain then security and restoration are the streams that are flowing out of that fountain Right? So righteousness and justice are the fountain, and security and restoration flow from that fountain. Chapter 32, verse 2 says, Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Notice the three perils of being in the wilderness. Right? There's the storm, and along with the storm comes wind and rain. Then... There is the thirst, and then finally, the sun. The great news is that God himself will be your shelter from all of these things. Right? So So if you have placed your trust in God, it means that he will be like a hiding place for you during the storms of this life, that you can seek refuge in him. If you trust in God, then he will be to you like a cool drink of water when you are feeling dry and empty and you just can't go on. If you trust in God, then he will bring comfort to you like a great shade from the fatigue and the weariness of this life that just constantly beats you up. You see, there is complete security in God. The perils of this life cannot harm you. 
Because there is protection from every kind of threat. And so we praise God because He is looking after us. He's taking care of us. He's keeping us safe. And we praise Him for the security. And we also praise Him for the restoration that He brings to us. And this is first a personal restoration and then a societal restoration here in chapter 32. Verses 3 and 4 say, Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. So here in chapter 32, we see this beautiful reversal of the judgment that came in chapter 6. Remember chapter 6, the call on Isaiah's life. And in that chapter, a seraphim touches Isaiah's mouth with a burning coal and says, Behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. And then Isaiah hears the Lord say, Whom shall I send? And Isaiah in that famous line says, Here I am, send me. And oftentimes, that's as far as we take that story. But the scripture continues to say that the people will hear, but not understand. They will see, but they will not perceive. And the heart of the people will be dull. And so God is telling Isaiah that he will judge the people, and they will be blind and deaf, and their hearts will be calloused. But when the coming Messiah arrives, when King Jesus is on the throne, all of that is undone. The eyes of those who see will no longer be closed. The ears of those who hear will finally be able to listen. In other words, judgment will be lifted, but only for those who place their trust in God. This is a personal, spiritual awakening. Your eyes can now see the glory of God and display of the person of Jesus Christ. Your ears are unstopped. And so as you read God's word, it feels as though he's speaking directly to me. And your heart is no longer unresponsive to the ways of God. Many of you are familiar with the great English hymn writer, John Newton. His most famous hymn being Amazing Grace. Well, at the age of 10, young John Newton began working with his father to build slave ships, and he would often accompany his father as they would go and and trade slaves. At a young age, John Newton was an outspoken atheist, who is known for his blasphemy and his gambling and his alcohol. Well, during one of his slave trading voyages, there was this great storm out there on the water that caused Newton to reevaluate his life. And he began to pray, God, will you spare me? And while this wasn't the moment of his salvation, it would appear as if this was the beginning of God opening his eyes and unstopping his ears. And so it was a short time after this voyage that Newton truly surrendered his life and began to trust in God. He rejected slavery altogether and in fact became one of the loudest voices to abolish slavery. His work alongside a parliament member, William Wilberforce, led to the passing of the Slave Trade Act of 1807, just months before he died. And slavery was finally abolished in most parts of that empire in 1833. John Newton was a changed man. He was a restored man. And so he writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I was blind, but now I see. And not only is this a great testament 
of a personal spiritual restoration. It is also an example of how personal restoration leads to societal restoration as he was one of the leading voices to abolish slavery. That's what we see next in verses 5 through 8. It says, The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words. Even, when he, even with the plea of the needy is right, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. See, Isaiah is being very clear. Society's going to look different. It's going to be different. No longer will the fool be called noble. No longer will the scoundrel be respected. No, no, no. Truth will be valued. And all the cheap nonsense that people set a high price tag on will be seen for what it truly is. There's one European author who put it this way. He said he sees the the Western world as a type of window shopping where all the price tags are reversed. All the cheap things are highly valued and the things that are really expensive are cheapened. I'm not much into bashing the Western world. I kind of think that would be appropriate for the world. And I take that to mean that things like like abusing power and, and, and materialism and taking advantage of people are highly valued. We look at that, those things and say, yeah, that's what it takes to get to the top. All the while, things like moral fiber and family values are cheapened. But all of that will be reversed for those who trust in the king. And so there's a beautiful new kingdom of righteousness and justice of security and restoration that awaits those who trust in God. And then Isaiah contrasts that kingdom that awaits those who trust in God with the current complacent women in Jerusalem. In verses 9 through 15, he says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness, will, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest." Now, things were going so well. Things were on the up and up. It looked really good before these verses. Like, why would Isaiah throw in this paragraph right here? Why would he make an appeal to the women who are at ease and feel secure in Zion? Like, why speak to carelessness or, or pronounce judgment against the, against the harvest? I think that it's no coincidence that this paragraph comes right after the beautiful promises that we saw in the first eight verses of the chapter. You see, Isaiah gives these good promises of what awaits the believer, and then he reminds us, do not take them for granted. I mean, after all, like we've read the end of the book, right? Like in the end, we know that we win, that Jesus is the victor. So like, why care about 
right here. Why I care about right now. I think Isaiah wrote this paragraph because he knows that whenever you trust in the good promises of God, there's a very real danger that your current state of life will become one of complacency. Right? And this makes sense. Like if somebody promises me that that big test that I have to take next week, that I will get a 100% on that test. And, and I like, I fully believe that. Like I have placed my complete and utter trust in that promise that I will get a 100% on that test tomorrow. I mean next week. You know what I'm not doing for the next week? I'm not studying. No, I have trust. <laughs> Somebody promised me that I'm going to get 100%. I, I have trust and it's going to be on display because I'm not studying. Like, who cares? Who cares about right now? If you studied, you, you must not really trust that promise, huh? And there's such a temptation to grow complacent. Such a temptation to just be at ease. Like, like what I'm really trying to say is if I'm headed towards a kingdom of righteousness and justice, of security and restoration, then why care about today? Like, like, why even care about the sin in my life? Don't you know that the future kingdom is going to be amazing? Like, I, like, who cares? Like, who cares about the lost soul who's living next door? Like, don't you know that the promises are, are, are fantastic? Like, why not just enjoy a life of ease? Like one day at a time until finally, you know, I, I, I'm good. I'll be brought into that kingdom. I think it's pretty easy for us who have been Christians for a long time to assume that everything is just going to run like it always has. I mean, after all, life's not too bad. So let's just sit back and let's just enjoy it. And that kind of living produces thorns and briars. And when you just grow complacent, it creates problems. When you live a life of ease, it creates problems. And nobody wants that, right? But that is the promise of what will happen if you live a life of complacency. And the only way out of that kind of life is found in verse 15 when it says that the Spirit will be poured out. Like that's what we want, right? Like we want to be a people who live by the Spirit. Like after all, Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 says, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that's exactly what the end of chapter 32 is telling us. That when you put your trust in God and abandon your life of ease and you live a spirit-filled life, then, right, then, verse 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places, and it will hail when the forests fall down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Church, Isaiah has said it many times, and so I will say it one last time. Trusting in God and living by the Spirit leads to righteousness and peace. It leads to quietness. It leads to security and rest. But this is for those who trust in the Lord. Now, I've talked a lot this morning, and I intentionally skipped two verses back in chapter 31 because I want to highlight them here at the end. And this, this is what we're going to do for our, our time of reflection. We're not going to have any thought-provoking questions per se. So Stephen, if you want to
come on up. That'd be all right. I've spent all morning talking about trust. And yet there are some people in the room who have not trusted in Christ for the very first time. And if that's you, I want you to pay special attention to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 31. It says, Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Like the Bible doesn't pull any punches, does it? It's very clear you have revolted against the Lord. Very plainly, it tells us you are a rebel. You've revolted against the Lord. And listen, if you want to trust in the Lord, you have to admit that. You can't be offended by that truth. You have to say, no, that's, that's accurate. That's, that's true about me. I have revolted against the Lord. I have rebelled against Him. You have to admit that you are a sinner and that you are in desperate need of a Savior. And once you admit that, it says to return to Him. To return to the Holy One of Israel. To return to the One that you have revolted against. You have to go back to God. In other words, you have to confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. But there's one more thing here that we often overlook. If you want to completely trust in the Lord, not only do you have to admit that you have revolted against Him, not only do you have to return to Him, but you have to reject every other God. To reject all idolatry. I said it before, our God is a jealous God. And He will not share you. He will not share you with anything or anyone else. And so when it comes to God, you either trust Him with 100% of your life or you simply do not trust Him. During the next couple minutes, I'm going to be down here on the floor. I mean, if you've never trusted Jesus with your life, you'd like to talk more about that, I, mean, I, I would love to chat with you. And if it makes you uncomfortable to come down here to the front, that's okay. I'll hang around after the service or you can catch my attention and say, go to the back and I'll go to the back with you. Or maybe you have put your trust in Jesus, but you're still craving Egypt. You're still comparing yourself to everyone around you. Or maybe you've just grown complacent and you're enjoying a life of ease. Listen, the altar is open. Come and pray. Come and repent. Come and receive encouragement. If you see somebody up here praying, don't be scared to come up here and encourage them and pray with them. Whatever you need to do. Stephen's going to keep playing for just a little while. And after a little bit, then I'll conclude with a word of prayer. And then he'll lead us in a couple more songs.